The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing with me this morning as we read Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 through 22. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, At break of day, the king arose and went haste to the dens of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, there's just those times that we get to gather together with your people and look up and think, man, what a thing you've called us to. What an incredible thing that a bunch of sinful, rebellious, stubborn-hearted people you would save us through the blood of your son you would forgive us and cleanse us that you would join us together in in a body like this and then father that you would say to us that our duty our ultimate goal our greatest responsibility is to glorify you and that then there are these moments on your day when we gather together and we lift our voices as one and, and a desire to do exactly that, we seek to bring you glory. And we, we see just a glimpse in these moments of what it really looks like to find our purest joy and our greatest satisfaction in magnifying your name. That's what this is. As we read your word, as we offer prayers, as we sing songs of praise, We recognize that what we do now is what echoes off into eternity, that our voices are joined now with all the saints who have gone before, with the holy angels in heaven even now that are praising you. And it's a marvelous thing. Father, I can't imagine being anywhere else in all the world. So we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you receive our praise 
We thank you now that you allow us to sit under the teaching of your word. Father, I pray that you would guard my lips from saying anything that ought not be said. Father, I pray you would give these people ears to hear. I pray that we would all be transformed because of our encounter here this morning. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we are getting, as I'm sure you know, very close to the end of Mark's gospel. Our plan this morning is to finish up our studies of the events of both Good Friday and Holy Saturday, and then, God willing, we'll move on next week to our studies of Easter Sunday morning. Now, as is John Mark's typical pattern, he speaks very, very directly, very short and to the point with regards to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, you'll find that in Mark's gospel, he's just devoted eight chapters to this teaching. Now, if you're looking at chapter 16 in, in your copy of God's word, you might be thinking, wait a minute. I don't find just eight verses there. I find that Mark chapter 16 goes all the way through verse 20. So what gives? Now, we've discussed this fairly frequently during our time together in Mark's gospel. And there is a very good explanation for this, and it is my hope that this explanation brings you great comfort, brings you great confidence in the veracity of the copy of God's word that you now hold in your hands. Now, this is going to be a refresher for many of you, but it bears repeating. It's absolutely critical that you know that you can trust the translation of God's word, the copy of God's word that you have in your hands. And so the next 15 minutes, they're going to seem a bit technical. You're going to perhaps at times wonder what place they have within a sermon at all. But dear friends, you must understand that the thoughts that you think about God's word, that your ability to stake your eternity on the truth of God's word, it is all wrapped up in your ability to think, to believe, to trust that these in fact are the words of God. Sola Scriptura. We proclaim that this is the only sufficient and perfect standard of spiritual truth. Everything you need to believe in order to be saved Everything that you need to do in order to glorify God, it is laid out for you in this word. And we confess that these are not just the words of men, but these are the words of God. We read in Peter's second letter, he says this, that no, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In a very real way, this word is God-breathed. These scriptures are the literal word of God, and we are the people who have pledged our life more so than any church I've ever been a part of. You are a people who have pledged your life to knowing and studying and believing and living in accordance with these scriptures. And so when we come to difficult issues like this, like what happened to the rest of Mark's gospel, we neither honor God nor do ourselves any favors by ignoring these difficult questions. Your confidence in the accuracy of the copies of the Holy Scriptures is absolutely critical. This stuff matters. It has very real and practical consequences for your daily walk. You see, you're not going to dive headlong into a pool if you think there's any chance there might be something under the water that's gonna break your neck. And I want you to go deep. You need to go deep. You need to be able to give yourselves completely and wholly to the word of God. As we look around us at a world that continues to increase their attacks on the Holy Scriptures, they continue to try and trip us up. I don't want you to be caught off guard. I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. 
I don't want you to feel like petulant little children that have to get ugly and angry and defensive like you're defending some little house of cards. My hope for us as a people is that we will continue to grow. We'll continue to grow individually. We'll continue to grow as a faith family into a deep and robust faith. What we will find is incredible confidence. We have no concern about attack or questions that might come against our theology because we know that they are grounded on the abiding word of God and not opinions, not emotions, and certainly not man-made traditions. And so at least part of this, because most of you people, myself included, don't read Greek. All of us, every single one of us, don't have access to the original writings of John Mark. And so at least part of this must begin at the very root, at the very base, by asking the question, can this word in our hands be trusted? Now with regards to the question, regarding the end of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, I'm not asking you to become some kind of expert in textual criticism. Again, I am far from that, as you will very quickly find out. I'm fixing to go way out of my depths. I'm not asking you to become an expert in this. Most of you don't have time to become an expert in this, but you have to think through the thoughts. You have to ask the questions, and you have to think through the thoughts because unshakable faith in this word, it doesn't come from suppressing honest doubts. It doesn't come from suppressing honest questions and concerns. It comes from staring them straight in the face face, and then doing everything you can to find the answers, to considering the problems, to considering the questions, to considering the concerns, and then saying, in what way can we be sure that we can trust in this word? So again, as I said, no one has possession of the original, writers, original writings of Isaiah or Mark or Peter or Paul. These things have all surely turned to dust by now. These original writings, they're called autographs. That's the official word. So these autographs, we don't, have, we don't have access to these. And so if somebody wanted to come and check your English translation of the Bible, somebody wanted to come and, and check your copy of God's word, they couldn't just go to some hermetically sealed vault somewhere in in Rome or perhaps in Jerusalem and just compare what's written here to what Mark actually wrote with pen and paper way back when. Beyond this, with regards to the manuscripts, that's what we have. We have copies. We have handwritten copies of what we believe Mark and Peter and Paul actually wrote. But in addition to not having the originals, in addition to not having the autographs, We don't even have some straight line of transmission from the original to a copy to a copy of that copy. The the copies of God's word, the manuscripts that were used in order to put together, in order to translate, in order to produce your English translation copy of God's word, it did not come in some direct, easy-to-follow path. Are you understanding what I'm saying to you? It would be nice if we had the originals. And some of you may or perhaps be thinking it would be nice if we had some straight line of transmission. Again, a copy of the original copy. But instead what we have is literally hundreds, 5,800 in fact, manuscripts, portions of either all or some portion of the New Testament in Greek. And these weren't all just handed on through just one man or two men or just one group of men. There were literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of scribes that had come along. Now, these aren't scribes like the men that we saw coming into contact with Jesus in the New Testament. These men that were in some official official position, these men that that opposed Jesus. You see, the transmission of of the Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures, it was much different. What would happen was Paul would write a letter to a church somewhere. Perhaps he would tell that church, hey, after you've received this letter, pass it on to another church that they may also receive these words. 
And then perhaps some Christian could be traveling to that church. He would come to that church and he would hear these words and say, I've never heard something like this before. Well, they came from the Apostle Peter. Haven't you heard these words? No. Would you mind if I copied them down? Then this man, he may not have been all that well trained. He then would have made a handwritten copy of this letter and he would have carried it on to another church. He arrived at that church and they thought, we've never heard these words before. You say they came from the Apostle Paul? We must have them. Would you mind if we made a copy? So you've got copies of copies of copies of copies. Coming in a time when there was no photocopiers, there was no, no electronic, for the vast majority of the church's history, there was no electronic means, no photocopy way of making these, and so you can imagine what happens. When you don't have some traceable line of transmission, it wasn't as if Mark handed these words to William Tyndale or the people at Crossway, and they just had to then rightly interpret them to put them in your English Bible. Instead, when you've got this, this tree with branches going off in all these different directions. Instead of some direct providence that you can trace back to the originals, when you've got 5,800 copies of the Greek New Testament that are scattered out anywhere from the 2nd century to the 16th century after Christ, you can imagine the hard work that comes with this. You can imagine the difficulty that pops up with this. Any of you that have ever done the work of having to hand copy something, kids don't understand this anymore. Now you just copy and paste. But back in the day when you actually had to write sentences with your hand, or even if you had to go to a typewriter or, or a PC for that matter, and you had to write out long quotations for research papers, you know how easy it is to make mistakes. You can miss a word. You can misspell a word. You can misplace a word. You can skip entire lines, especially if some of those sentences end with the same few letters that the sentence before it began with. It becomes very easy, easy to make mistakes like this. Variance is the, is the word when it comes to manuscripts of the Holy Scriptures. Variances. And what we find, in fact, when we come to copies of God's word is that exactly this has happened. There are something like 400,000 variances that have been identified with regards to manuscripts, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. So what do you do? What do you do when you don't have access to the original? What do you do whenever you don't have just one but hundreds of copies? How can you tell what's correct and what's an error? How can you determine what belongs? How can you determine what's been removed? How can you determine what's been added by somebody? Well, what you do is you compare these manuscripts to each other. You look at all the variants that are available, and we thank God for good and faithful men that do exactly that. God has given us brilliant men that they not only identify, but they compare and they record and they prayerfully consider all of these variants for us. And what we found is that something like 99.5% of these 400,000 variants are inconsequential. There's something easy to understand, like a spelling mistake, like the removal of a, of a uh, Greek new, perhaps a misordering of words. Other ones are even easier to spot, like the removal of entire verses or, or the taking of a verse from another gospel and implanting it into Mark's gospel. So because of this, you take this 400,000 variants, and pretty quickly you find you've really got something like 2,000 at best. 2,000 variants that we must really consider questions that we must really ask, things that might really challenge us at times. But we praise God that when we study these variances, what we come to find is that none of them attack, none of them question, none of them bring under doubt any of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, the deity of Christ. You see, there's this thing within theology. You don't base these essential doctrines you don't base your theology on anything that might be found in just one single variant or in just one verse, things like the deity of Christ like the assurance of the resurrection, like the promise that Jesus Christ is coming back, like the hope that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But here's the point. I hope I haven't 
I haven't lost you by now. I've halfway lost myself. But, but here's the point. It can be extremely tempting for us to think, especially when we come against people that are seeking to attack the, the veracity of our copy of God's word. And that's what atheists will often do. They'll point out, well, look, you can't even agree amongst yourselves. You don't even know whether John ended at verse 8 or verse 20. And so we can get frustrated at times. We can find ourselves thinking, well, dadgummit. If God wasn't going to preserve for us the original writings, wouldn't it have been nice then if he had restricted how many manuscripts are out there? Why did he have to allow all these dudes to get hold of the copies? Why did he have to allow all these men to make handwritten copies for themselves? Wouldn't it be better if there was just one authoritative copy? Just one select group. Perhaps one authoritative group within the church and they kept control of however many copies there were going to be. And then they destroyed those that got old or those that had errors. They would destroy those and they would just hold on to these newer ones. They would just hold on to these better ones. And then we could just take our copy of God's word. We could take it directly to that. Then there would be no variances, right? There would just be one official manuscript, just one official copy of God's word. You go to Rome, you go to Jerusalem, you go to Crosby, Texas, wherever it's held there in some vault. And there you can know that there will be no variances. There will be no arguments. There will be no disagreements. You with me? Now, to some extent, this argument is not entirely untrue. But here's the problem that something like that would produce. If what we have, if God had chosen to preserve his, manner, his, his word in a manner like this, if instead of having hundreds, literally thousands of copies of his manuscripts, there was just one singular group, and they were in charge of that one singular manuscript, don't you see how your ability to trust in the veracity of that word goes down, not up? You're completely relying upon those men making no mistakes whatsoever because any mistakes they make, there's nothing to then check it against. In addition to this, you're reliant upon believing that these men have the, the purest of motives in mind. Don't you see how easy it would be for then some clandestine group to come along and they can bribe or pressure or do whatever they need to do to make changes to the scriptures? Those changes would be lost forever. We'd have no way of knowing this. And so we praise God that instead of this, instead of one group controlling the scriptures, we have this free transmission. We have almost just this willy-nilly process where you have all these men making copies of copies of copies of God's word. So that when we come together to all these manuscripts, what we're able to do is we look at this and we go, we know that all of God's word is here. We've just got to sort through and find out what's what. Are you following me? I heard a guy this week, as I was studying through this, I heard a guy this week that asked the question. He said, if you are putting together a jigsaw puzzle, which problem would you rather have? It's a 100-piece jigsaw puzzle. Would you rather find that you've been given 110 pieces or 90? You see, you'll never complete the puzzle with 90 pieces. Your challenge with 110 is to figure out what doesn't belong. Are you with me? That's exactly what God has done. God has allowed men, some men great, some men not so great, to make copies of his word. And then he's brought along brilliant men to sort through all the pieces and say, here, we can assure you that what we have in our possession, to 99.5% down to the letter, what it is that we have received from the apostles and the prophets. Do you see the beauty of what God has done? So, with regards to when we get to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, having thought through all these manifold checks and balances that, that God has given us, we find that we don't have to be then bashful about these variances. We don't have to be caught off guard. We don't have to be afraid of some atheist or some non-believer wanting to attack our faith and coming ask us. And as a matter of fact, we can celebrate this. We can celebrate the fact that this is an evidence, this is a proof, this is a work that God has done to give us confidence in God's word. We can point people to these variances. We don't wait for them to bring, us to, bring them to us. We, we note them in our scriptures. Isn't that what we've seen? As we've walked through Mark's gospel, I've drawn your attention to a number of them, to those that I thought that were most likely to catch your attention. 
Think about Mark chapter 9. Do you remember that? We came to Mark chapter 9, and I drew your attention to the fact that there is, in many of your translations, there is no verse 44 or verse 46 listed. In some of your translations, there's a verse 44 or a 46 listed, and they're in brackets. And then there's a footnote somewhere below that says something like, in the earliest and best manuscripts, verse 44 and 46 are not contained and are, in fact, a copy of verse 48. So it's not that we're losing some teaching there. Some well-meaning scribe or not well-meaning scribe, we don't really know, doesn't really matter, came along and repeated the words of verse 48 in verse 44 and in verse 46. The publisher says, hey, I want to make you aware of this. This is exactly what's happened with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, what you will find if you go and do this study for yourself, and I praise God that now that we do live in the time of the Internet, it's not just one group that holds on to all this evidence. You can, in fact, pull up on your iPhone right now a list of all these manuscripts for yourself. If you could read Greek or if you knew someone that read Greek, we got one dude. If you do knew somebody that could read Greek, you would take these things and you could compare them for yourselves. You could actually look at the manuscripts and figure out, is the evidence here? Now what you'll find for this last 12 verses in Mark chapter 16, it's listed in some, some scriptures, some, some passages of scripture, copies rather. What you will find is that they were in a great number of early manuscripts, but in some of the most critical manuscripts, some entire books, Codices is the name for those. And some entire books that contain all of the Holy Scriptures, what we find is they are not there. In addition to that, if you read through the words of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, they don't sound a whole lot like Mark. They introduce some weird theology at points. In addition to that, there's some early church writings where they've drawn into question these words, whether in fact they were from Mark, whether this was an official writing, an original writing of Mark. And so what we find in the ESV in many of your translations, what we find is that the words aren't eliminated altogether. They're included in brackets, along with a note of warning. These might not be original scripture. Again, we don't hide it. We don't pretend like it never happened. We don't burn it somewhere. We don't forbid people from talking about it. We bring it before you and we say, we don't believe that this is official scripture. We don't believe that this can be trusted, but we trust you under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to determine for yourself. So do with it as you will. This does matter. This does matter. So for those of you that have fallen asleep, stand to your feet. We return to our normal pattern now, working verse by verse through the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel. We pick it up again in verse 42, and this is the word of God. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen sh- bought a linen shroud And taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe this word. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you to do. You will do this, Father. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So for those of you that were here last week, you already know a great deal about this man called Joseph of Arimathea. 
The scripture tells us that he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish Supreme Court. These are the men that had been trying to take Jesus' life for nearly three full years. These were the men that had plotted together with Judas to betray Jesus. These were the men that went and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. These were the men that had then gone to Pilate, stirring up the crowd to demand that Jesus would be crucified. These were the men that had charged Jesus, the very Son of God himself, with blasphemy. This was the group. This was the group, and in this group, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member. But Joseph was also looking for the kingdom of God. Like so many other Old Testament saints, Joseph was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He knew the prophecies. He had read the word. He had looked forward to the coming of the promised, eternal, messianic king. And he saw in Jesus exactly that. Scripture also tells us that Joseph was a rich man. Unlike some rich men, Joseph was also a righteous man. As a righteous man, Joseph knew that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. He did not... He did not see in Jesus any, any hint of blasphemy. He did not see in Jesus any hint of sin. He did not see in Jesus anything deserving of death. But not only this, we read that Joseph of Arimathea was also a secret disciple of Jesus. He didn't just know that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus was the Christ. And yet we know that Joseph was not willing to make this belief public. He was not willing to make a public declaration of his faith in Jesus as the Christ. This was because Joseph was afraid of what it would cost him. He was afraid of the other Jewish leaders. He was afraid that he would lose his position, he would lose his power, perhaps even that he would lose his life. But now that Jesus is dead, now at a time when it would seem to make no sense whatsoever for this man to proclaim his faith, now that all the other disciples have fled, now that any hopes of a messianic kingdom would seem to have been dashed in the death of Jesus, now we see this man gathering his courage, going to Pilate, and asking for Jesus' body. Again, I say, what a time to make this public declaration. I'm reminded that there's oftentimes, there, there's just seeming insanity to the times in which men are willing to speak up. That's one of the greatest evidences we can have that a man has come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ when there is nothing in the flesh that would demand that of him. Everything in the flesh would say, keep your mouth shut. You've got nothing to gain here, man. Keep your mouth shut. But it's at that point that you're willing to go out on a limb. It's on that point that you're willing to stand up and say the hard thing. Now, Joseph goes to Pilate, and we have to know that the Sanhedrin were probably still there. You remember that the council, they were worried about having the bodies of these condemned men off the cross before the sun went down and the Sabbath began. And so they went to Pilate, and they asked of Pilate that he would have his soldiers go and break the legs of both Jesus and the condemned man on the right and the left of him. Now, we, of course, know that Jesus' legs were not broken, just as has been prophesied. By the time the centurion, by the time the soldiers arrived, we know that Jesus had already let out a loud cry, bowed his head, and given up his spirit. Exactly as Jesus had said, he would give up his own life. No man would take it from him. It was at that point we know that the soldier had driven a spear through Jesus' body, but the Sanhedrin hadn't yet apparently received word of that yet. Neither had Pilate. So it seems as though they would have still been in the area at this point when Joseph of Arimathea, he comes. At this point, you have to know that Joseph's secret was out. These men knew, but by the grace of God, Joseph didn't care. He wasn't concerned with the consequences anymore. He knew that this was the right thing to do. He knew that Jesus deserved to have his body taken care of. He deserved a proper burial. And so he goes to Pilate, he requests the, the body, and his request is granted. Now this is not the normal pattern, as I told you last week. More often than not, condemned men like this, men who have been executed by crucifixion, their bodies would have been taken down off the cross, and they would have been thrown into the, to the town dump. Gehenna is the word. It's a place that is becomes synonymous with hell. It's a place where the fire is not quenched 
and worm does not die. This was the faith that awaited most condemned men. This was the faith that would have awaited Jesus. He would have had a place. He would have been thrown upon this pile with the wicked, and yet God had prepared for him a place of honor. He would not be thrown into the trash dump. This would be the beginning of Jesus' exaltation. He would receive the burial of a king. This rich man would come and he would ask for his body. Jesus' body would be entrusted to the rich man called Joseph. And he, along with another uh, Jewish ruler, a Pharisee, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. We're familiar with Nicodemus. He's the one that came also under the darkness of night and met with Jesus in John 3. Nicodemus had come, and he also was a secret follower of Jesus Christ, apparently. And at this point, though, he comes along with Joseph of Arimathea, and they're going to care for Jesus' body. They take the body down off the cross. They clean him up. Again, I told you last week, it, it touches my heart to picture this, this tender scene as they, they care for the Lord's body. We're told that Joseph went and he bought a, a new shroud, a linen shroud. He takes this, this clean cloth. Joseph brought along with him 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh. They wrapped that along with the cloth, taking care of Jesus' body, and then they placed him in what's called a garden tomb. We have to believe that this garden tomb belonged to Joseph. We don't see Joseph asking anybody for permission. This was the garden tomb that belonged to a rich man. We are told explicitly, though, that no one had ever been laid in this tomb. Again, I say, this was the burial. This was a funeral for a king, for a rich man, a truly splendid funeral that was provided for and attended by no one but these two unlikely disciples verse 46 and joseph rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb now the tomb of rich men they had large stones that served as doors this is a way of keeping grave robbers away again if this was a rich man's tomb it would not be crazy for grave robbers to believe that perhaps they had been buried with something of value so rape uh Grave robbers were a very common thing, and so you had to protect against that. In, in addition to that, though, you had to worry about wild animals. You remember that they didn't embalm bodies back then the way that we do today. They didn't drain the blood. They didn't remove the organs. They would Very quickly, they would bury their loved ones. They would wrap them in whatever cloth they had, taking whatever spices they had. They would wrap them up to try to cover the stench, and then they would put them in the tomb. And we have to imagine, though, that even with these spices... Even with these attempts to cover up the smell, you have to imagine with someone like Jesus, it was probably still leaking blood. You have to imagine that wild animals could smell this from a a mile away. And so certainly there would have been this tendency for wild animals to come and drag your loved one, drag their bodies out of the tomb unless you covered it up in some way. And so whenever you had a a tomb, a grave that was carved out of a stone like this, you'd have had a stone entrance, a door that would have rolled over the entrance. Now this stone is obviously going to play a big role in the weeks to come. Again, I say I don't know how many weeks we're going to spend talking about Resurrection Sunday, but the stone plays a critical role in this. But I think it's important for us now just to have a picture in our mind of what this would have looked like. You see, when I was a little boy, I always had in my picture, just a, in my mind, just a, a big round rock, especially when you read that the angels sat upon it. So I'm just picturing like a gigantic round sphere, like a, a, a boulder of some sort. But in my studies, what I found is that most Jewish historians, they paint a picture of something a bit more like a, like a huge stone wheel, like a disc of some sort. That what would have happened was they would have, they would have dug a, a trench or a, uh, or a channel of some sort, and this disc, this stone disc, would have sat within this. It would have sat in this, in this rut. In, in this rut, this channel, it would have been lower, it would have been deeper right in front of the face, the opening to the tomb, and it would have been higher as you come up away from it. Are you picturing this? So it's quite easy to roll the stone in front of the opening to the tomb, but it's much harder to roll it back upwards and away from it. As best I can tell in my studies, this is what we're dealing with here. So almost like a ramp, you're having to roll it up away from the tomb, and then it rolls back with with much more 
much more ease. And so we're told that Joseph rolled this stone across the face of this tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, they saw where Jesus was laid. Now you remember these faithful women. We, we talked about them, I think it was two weeks ago that I, I gave them great praise. It wasn't just these two. There was a number of women that had been following Jesus for a great number of years. These women were true disciples. They had followed Jesus. They had sat at his feet. They had heard his teaching. They had obeyed his commandments. They had met his needs and the needs of others that were there in the group. We're told that a number of these women, they had means. They had some money that apparently they had brought with him in order to keep the group going, providing food, I would imagine, at times. And yet even now, we're told that as the men have run, as all the apostles have abandoned Jesus, we're told that these women, these women would remain watching and waiting and praying and refusing to abandon Jesus in his time of greatest suffering. I stood in awe before you a couple of weeks ago, and I talked about the fact that in a time and a place where women were very much considered second-class citizens, that we see just how precious they are to both God and his son, Jesus Christ. The way in which they loved these women, the way in which these women were given a very precious, a priceless position within the story of Jesus' earthly ministry, how these would be the women that were there. They would be the last to see him alive. They would be the ones to hear him breathe out his last breath. They would be the ones that would watch as his body was buried. They would be the first ones to see him after the resurrection. That even as these men had run away, that these women were there. And so we, we know that these women were here and they're watching as these men take Jesus' body down off the cross. Now, now these women, they weren't from Jerusalem. Remember, they had come with Jesus from Galilee. And so they would not have had any immediate access to a grave of their own. Certainly not an unused garden tomb like this. And certainly not with such short notice. And so even if they had chosen to go to Pilate, I don't know that Pilate would have entertained them, but even if they had chosen to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body, they would have then had to take it and drag it somewhere some great distance in order, in order to do something with it. So truly you see the way God is orchestrating this entire thing so that these women are watching and Joseph who had this tomb has care of Jesus' body. Now Luke makes it sound like there was a number of women there, but Matthew and Mark, they only tell us about two of them. We're told about Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. Now, we know a great deal about Mary Magdalene. We know that Mary Magdalene was the one that was possessed by seven demons. Seven unclean spirits were within her. And then we hear those precious words, then she met Jesus. Coming into contact with the Son of God and with but a word. We're not told about this exorcism, but we know that it was surely like all the others. With but a word or a touch, a command. She was made right. She was made whole. Back in her right mind, a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know nearly as much about this other woman. This woman is referred to as Mary, the mother of Joseph. I told you two weeks ago that it seems to me that probably this is the wife of Cleophas, that this is the mother of James the Lesser, another apostle of Jesus Christ. But what's important for us to know is that these women were there. Again, even after Jesus had died upon the cross, even after whatever messianic hopes they may have had would have seemed to have been dashed, even after they looked and they may have been thinking in that moment, look, maybe Jesus wasn't who we thought he was. Even now, at this point, they were there watching him, watching carefully as he's taken down upon the cross or from the cross. They made this short trip. We're told that it's not a great distance. It was in the area, this short trip from the place where Jesus was crucified to his tomb. Now, we have no clue if these women knew that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret follower of Jesus Christ. I have to wonder that if so, that would set up something, a great deal of tension, right? Like, did the true and public followers, the, 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 the outed disciples of Jesus Christ, did they know about those who followed Jesus in secret? 
And can you imagine the dynamic that this sets up? Think about it. You've got double agents on both sides. You've got Judas Iscariot, a man who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who's actually working with the Sanhedrin. You've got Joseph of Arimathea, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, who's actually a secret follower of Jesus Christ. And we don't know if either one of them knew about either one of them. I wondered about that this week. I couldn't get it out of my head. Like, had Judas come to the meetings and seen Joseph and went, wait a minute, dude. We don't know. But surely you can imagine the resentment that would have built in as you watch these men, as you watch the Sanhedrin, as they blasphemed Jesus, as they mocked and beat and had him crucified, demanding his death. You can imagine the frustration that must have built up in the, in the lives of the disciples if they looked knowing that some among your rank are also followers of Christ. Some among your rank also believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so I have to believe that they did not know because there's, there's one thing I know for sure. There are very few declarative statements I'll make from this pulpit. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. Number two, he's coming back. And number three, Peter would not have been able to keep his mouth shut. Had Peter known who Joseph Arimathea was, don't you know when they came to arrest Jesus, he'd have went, no, time out, bring us Joseph. There's no way he would have been kept his mouth shut. So I think perhaps they didn't know, they didn't have any clue about this, and I think that's probably why these women were following so closely. I have to wonder if these Marys, they didn't look up and go, who are these men and why are they touching my Lord? Who are these men and where are they gonna go with Jesus' body? You think about the abuse and the mockery that he's already endured, I can imagine. It does not take the most vicious of minds to imagine all the grotesque things the abominable things they could have done with jesus body so it seems as though these women followed to follow by again taking care of jesus wanting to minister to jesus to his corpse even in his death so because of this these women they saw exactly where jesus body was laid they saw the men ran the women saw you get in the pattern yet The women were there, these blessed women, and they saw exactly where Jesus' body was laid. They saw the tomb. They saw the door to the tomb. They saw the way his body was cared for, and they saw the stone that was rolled across it. And this is critical. This is critical. Matthew tells us that the women, they sat across the garden from the tomb. So I'm picturing the Marys. They're sitting over. They found a nice spot. I can imagine the, the, the tears probably still coming down their face, probably sobs coming upon them at times, and yet they're sitting there on the other side of the garden and they're watching intently everything that's taking place. They saw it with their own eyes. They watched Jesus suffer and die. They watched his side be pierced with a spear. They watched where he was buried. And again, I say this is critical. Because there's so many people that they'll say that the women were confused. They'll say they were just so frantic and they were in such a frenzy about everything that had happened that they couldn't have possibly known which tomb Jesus was buried in. And so when they came back on Easter Sunday, they just returned to the wrong one. They just went to some other tomb that nobody had ever been laid in. And of course there was nobody there because Jesus had never been laid there. But dear friends, these women, they didn't, just, they didn't just catch a glimpse out of the corner of their eye. They weren't running away like the men and then look back over their shoulder and go, oh, that's Joseph, I know where his tomb is. They sat intently and they watched with great tenderness and care and concern for the Lord's body. They watched and they made note because they had a plan that they were going to come back the next day and care for his body. You with me? We're told explicitly in Luke's gospel that the women, they headed back to wherever they were staying in the region. I have to imagine that this was the house of Mary and Martha over in, in Bethany. We don't, we don't know exactly where they went, but they retired for the night and they prepared spices and, or, uh, and ointments. Now you people know that I hate 
preacher jokes. I've already made one about Peter. I hate preacher jokes. I despise them. I never write jokes into my sermons. And um, I especially hate preacher jokes that talk about the differences between men and women and marital tension and all that stuff. They're lame and they're tired and they're played and whatever. But, but my head hurts and I've got to say this. These, these women, they watched these dudes take care of Jesus, and they did their best, I'm sure, right? Like they take his body and they wipe the blood off and they care for the open wounds. You know, they take 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh and they wrapped his body up and they put him in the tomb and they rolled the stone away and they thought, man, we have done, we have done right by Jesus. And these ladies looked at each other and said, we better go back home and get some spices together to come back and do it right tomorrow. <laughs> That's my last preacher joke ever. Thank you for. But but you do wonder how this how this worked, right? Probably what happened was these men had to work with great haste because the sun was going down, right? The Sabbath was upon them, and they needed to get Jesus into the tomb, and and, and they needed to get on with with their Sabbath celebrations, I suppose. And so the women were going to come back, and they had obviously more time on the first day of the week once once Easter Sunday came, but. The sun went down, and so it's now the Sabbath. And Luke tells us that on the Sabbath, they, I'm assuming that is the women and all the others, they rested in accordance with the commandment. So everyone would rest until the sun came up on Sunday. And I, I can't even imagine what went through these women's minds. Now, we, we call it Good Friday because we know the way that this story ends. But we, we try to get a taste of that each Good Friday, if you've ever gathered with us here on a Good Friday for the last, I guess, three years now, if you've ever gathered together with us for our Tenebrae service here on Easter Easter week on, on Good Friday, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is, of all the services that we do all year, it is the one that affects me more deeply than anything else. And I've heard from many of you that it is, it is exactly that. I would encourage you, if you haven't made it here for a Tenebrae service yet, to just do whatever you have to do to get here to get here for the whole of Holy Week and all that we do during that week. Just tell your boss you're taking the week off, and I said it was okay. But we, we sit in this room, and it's, and it's dark, and the, and the only illumination that we have comes from seven candles that are up here at the, at the front of the room. And what happens is that we'll read a portion of the Passion story from Matthew's Gospel, and then one candle will be snuffed, and then we ring a bell, and then we all sit in reflective silence. feeling the weight of what it is that we've just read and, and we do this we repeat this and until we come to the last candle that is the Christ candle that's the candle that we light on Christmas Eve at the end of Advent that's the candle that sits right here next to the word on our on our table it's intended to represent the life the person of Jesus Christ then after reading about the death of Christ the whole room will be filled with the sound of an earthquake it's meant to it's meant to reenact and to bring our hearts and our minds back to the miraculous events, those, those supernatural signs that accompanied the death of Jesus Christ. And then we take that candle, we take the Christ candle, and we put it into a makeshift tomb. And we seal it up. At that moment, the entire room is dark. And we sit. My instructions to the, to the people as we practice for Tenebrae service, my instructions to the people is we will sit and to the point of everybody being uncomfortable, and then we'll go at least a minute after that. We sit in uncomfortable silence and just feel the weight 
we allow ourselves to feel what surely these women felt on that first Good Friday, wondering to themselves, has the light of the world been snuffed forever? Has the light of the world been taken away never to return? But dear friends, you know that it would be inappropriate for us to pretend like we don't know the rest of the story. Even for one day. It would be inappropriate, inappropriate for us to sit here and pretend like we don't know that Easter Sunday morning is coming. And so I take that, take that light back out. I take the light back out, and then it's at that point that I offer up this benediction, this prayer, this confession, this statement of Jesus' triumphal victory. I say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be all blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, we know the way that the story ends. That's why we call it Good Friday. But these women had no clue. You can imagine as they sat and they mourned, knowing that Jesus Christ laid in that tomb, a borrowed tomb. They could not yet look to each other and declare as we do, he is risen. They thought that all their hopes were lost. Whatever promises Jesus had made, they had come to pass. And and so we, we, we see this picture of Jesus' disciples. They are here. Those who are truly blessed, those who are his, those who will inherit eternal life, those who will be joined with him in his resurrection, they mourned and they wept in dark silence while the enemies of God feasted. They celebrated. They believed that the victory was theirs. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And isn't this the picture of the world? Condemned men celebrate. They feast. They enjoy all the good gifts of this world. Many of them believing that they have honored God. These men thought that they had done right by God. They thought that they had defended God. They thought that they had put to death a blasphemer. They counted themselves righteous and undefiled. While the true children of God hid in darkness and mourned. But oh, what a difference a day makes. So if we flip to Matthew's gospel, I think we have time for this. If you would flip over to Matthew's gospel, one more thing I want to show you because this is critical for our preparation. My only hope, right, this, this feels like a bit of a where are we going with this sermon. My hope is that we can set the stage so that you can come into this place with absolute confidence that Jesus Christ was dead and buried. So that then you can celebrate Easter, Easter sun, uh, Sunday appropriately. You can understand the resurrection in its full weight. You don't have these nagging doubts that are waiting on your shoulders. So I take you to Matthew's gospel, Matthew verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 62. We read this. The next day, that is the day after preparation. Remember we said the day of preparation is Friday, preparation for the Sabbath. This was a high day being the Passover. So it is now the next day. That means it's Saturday, meaning it's the Sabbath. Verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Dear friends, do you see the hypocrisy here already? Do you remember that these men would not go in before Pilate on the, on the day before? On Good Friday, they wouldn't go in before Pilate. We read in John 18, verse 28, that they, that is the Sanhedrin, they led Jesus to the house, from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, but they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. They wouldn't go into Pilate's house because they said, oh, that wouldn't be proper. That would make us impure. That would make us unclean. That would make us defiled, and then we couldn't observe the Passover. The reality is they wouldn't go into Pilate's house because there was a great crowd watching. The reality is these men wouldn't go in. 
They were worried about being defiled, not because they didn't want to honor, dishonor God, because they knew the crowd and the crowd was watching, and they had to keep up all the pretenses of propriety, all the pretenses of holiness and, and legalism and all the rest. And yet, now we find them here. And it doesn't say explicitly that they went into Pilate. You're going to have to read for yourself and determine. But I believe that that's what this is saying. Now that the crowds weren't there anymore, they're more than happy to come in to see Pilate. It's Sabbath and everyone else is resting. But whatever the case, they come in. They come in and they gather before Pilate. Verse 63, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Sir, do you hear the, the tone of empty respect there? They had no respect for Pilate. They had just been bullying him days earlier. You remember this? A day earlier. They just backed this punk into a corner, and basically the implicit threat was, give us what we want or we're going to report to Rome and you're going to lose your position of power, maybe your life. He was nothing but a useful idiot to them. But now all of a sudden they come before him, and, and, and they use this term, so, sir. Now maybe there had been some, some love gained because he had given them what they wanted. But I think they were just buttering him up. I'm picturing this, this false bow as they said it. And the word is, is, is kurios there. It's it also translated Lord. Lord, my Lord, sir. We remember what Jesus had said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. They called Jesus an imposter. Planos is the word, deceiver. They called Jesus the deceiver. Jesus was the imposter. And they believed that his deception was in saying that in three days, he would rise again. See, these chokers, they knew all along. Do you remember how they mocked Jesus when he was upon the cross? As the crowds came by, the crowds that walked along to and fro as Jesus was hanging on the cross, they said, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You see, the Jewish people, they had heard what Jesus said. They had misinterpreted what Jesus had said during the first Passover of his earthly ministry when he had first cleansed the temple. You remember that he had told them then that you will. They demanded a sign. By what authority do you do these things? He said, here's my sign that you will destroy the temple and in three days it will rise again. He was talking about their destruction of his body. They thought that he, they, they pretended to say that he was talking about the physical temple, the actual temple, the temple in which the sacrifices were offered. And so they mocked him on this day saying, look, you said you would destroy the temple, not knowing that he was talking about the temple of his body. You said that you would destroy this temple and in three days rise again. Well, apparently the Sanhedrin, they understood just fine. You notice they didn't correct the people. The teachers of the people, the keepers of the law, those that claim to know and represent God, they didn't look to the people and say, hey, that's not what this man said. They weren't worried about the truth in that moment. They just wanted everybody to hate the man. Perhaps I wonder if they also weren't thinking back to another particularly aggressive encounter they had with Jesus. Back in Matthew 12, you remember that time that they came to Jesus and they accused him of casting out demons by the hand of Beelzebul? And you remember that Jesus had this, this intense confrontation with them and they demanded a sign because that's what they always did. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Side note, you ever find yourself in a church where the pastor is trying to explain away Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, run. Jesus Christ preached it. These men knew what he was saying. Three days I will rise again. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, 
Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So the Sanhedrin, they had what they wanted. They had what they wanted. They had had Jesus crucified. They had rallied the crowd to demand his death. He was dead and he was buried, but they weren't satisfied. It wasn't enough just to have Jesus killed. They had to crush this movement. They had to squash his message. They had to do everything they could to disprove his teaching and his authority and to prove him to be a false prophet. That's what wicked and jealous men do. They can't be satisfied. They can never be mollified. They can never be content because their battle is against the truth and you can't defeat the truth. They're at war with God. How many times did they come against Jesus and they couldn't disprove his teaching? They couldn't disprove anything that he said. They couldn't trip him up in his own words. But it wasn't enough for them to reject him. They had to demand that he be crucified. It wasn't enough that they had him crucified. They had to do everything they could to squash his message. These are the same men that would chase after the church. It's been like Paul would go from town to town proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the assurance of his resurrection. These are the same men that would seek him and to try to take his life because they couldn't debate in an open forum. They couldn't have an open and honest conversation. They couldn't talk about the facts. All they knew was violence. All they knew was threats. All they knew was suppression of the truth. All they knew was limiting what other people could hear. We can't let them hear this message. So we've got to do everything that we can to suppress it. They weren't content with Jesus being dead and buried. So in their minds, their best bet at this moment was to make sure that someone guarded the tomb. Lest the disciples come and steal away his body. Now clearly these dudes did not understand the disciples. They weren't about to steal anything. They were in no mental state, they were no physical state to come and try and steal the body of Jesus. They were, they were cowards. They were running, they were hiding, except for the women. They were in no position to do this, pull off this kind of a hoax. The Sanhedrin gave them more credit than they were doing. They were, but they were worried. They were worried that the disciples would come and they would steal Jesus' body. They had no clue that Jesus Christ would rise again and that the powers of hell could not stop that. No legion of Roman army, the Roman army could stop something like that. And they had even less of an idea that not only would Jesus Christ rise again, but that he would reveal himself to literally hundreds. That he would show himself. That he would prove that this was no hoax. This was not weakened at Bernie's. This was not somebody hiding a body. This was not a, a misconception. It was Jesus Christ walking in a glorified body, eating, teaching, revealing himself to those who knew him best. But for now, their concern was to make sure that the disciples couldn't get to the body because they knew that if the people were truly convinced that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead, that this Christian movement would not be squelched. It would take off like wildfire. And isn't that exactly what happened? So they warned Pilate. You think there was, there, there was great danger for you whenever there was just this movement going on? Imagine what happens if they steal this man's body and convince everybody that he is raised from the dead. Imagine what kind of rebellion, imagine what kind of uprising, imagine what kind of turmoil, imagine what the world would look like if that actually happened. So they asked Pilate for a guard. Pilate says to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. A difference, Pilate was an evil and cowardly man. He chose expediency and self-preservation over righteousness and truth. There's nothing in Pilate to be admired, but I kind of pity the guy by this point. He's just exhausted. I've given you what you wanted. Why won't you just leave me alone? But he gives them what they want. He grants their request. Fine, you have a guard of soldiers. Now this could have been perhaps hundreds of soldiers. I'm thinking it was probably something less than that. But he says, fine, take these soldiers. Go make the tomb as secure as you can. Verse 66, 
So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Do you remember the way I described the stone? It doesn't really matter what kind of stone, but I'm still, I'm picturing like a flat disc of some sort that's been rolled over in front of. Um, Some people also believe maybe perhaps there was a flattened bottom to it, so it's kind of easy to roll it over up until it hits on its flat bottom, then it's really hard to roll back the other way. Either way, probably what would have happened in order for them to seal this tomb is they would have had some wax and a string or a rope of some sort. They would have taken some wax and put it upon the stone. They would have taken some wax and put it upon the wall to the cave, and then they would have put a string between the two and, and sealed it there. When I was a little kid, I would do this in my bedroom. I wanted to know if somebody had come in the room. I'd put a string or something in the doorknob and thinking if you turn the doorknob, the string falls, you know somebody's been in your room. And then possibly he would have sealed this. One of the soldiers would have sealed this with a ring or a signet of some sort so that you couldn't replicate the wax. You would know this is the official wax. That's probably what they did in this scenario. Are you picturing it? So they're sealing it up and you've got this guard there in order to, to take care that nobody takes, takes Jesus' body. Dear friends, I pray that you see how the best laid plans of the enemy only serve to further our confidence. You see, if they had left Jesus' body unguarded, if the Pharisees had kept their mouth shut and been satisfied with Jesus being dead and buried, and they left the body unguarded, the tomb unsealed, then it would have been much easier for them to claim a hoax. We know that they then did go and bribe these guards to proclaim that there had been a hoax. But how much easier would it have been if there had been nobody there to just say, look, I don't know, they stole his body. Their best laid plans, their hatred for God and the people of God, it only serves to further our confidence that Jesus was in fact dead and in the tomb and laid there for quiet Saturday. It wasn't until Easter Sunday when he rose again. One more thought. One more thought. As we think about the ceiling of the tomb as, as, as we think through what the, the picture my mind was drawn this week to the story of Daniel that's why I had asked David to read that to you earlier before our before our sermon thinking through this picture and there, and there are great similarities there's a great picture of Christ in the life of Daniel by this point an old man and we, we know the story of Daniel we know what happened in this scenario just as with Jesus there were powerful men that wanted to destroy Daniel they saw that he was a righteous man that he had the favor of God and so they went to a powerful king and they demanded of this king that he pass a law that if any would pray to anyone other than him for the next 30 days that he would be thrown to the lion's den. And we know that Daniel kept up his normal pattern. He wasn't picking a fight. He kept up his normal pattern of praying three times a day. He did it with his window open knowing that this meant that he would be seen. We know then that when these men saw, when they thought they had trapped Daniel in doing something that was forbidden, they ran with great glee to the king, much like the Sanhedrin running to Pilate. That much like Pilate, The king did not want to put Daniel to death. He knew that he had done no wrong. He knew that he was righteous. And yet, just like Pilate, the king gave in to pressure. He took Daniel and had him thrown into the lion's den. He sealed the tomb. He sealed sealed the den, and and he stamped it with his signet, making clear that Daniel is in here, and he has been handed over to these lions. And we know the story. Any any. The story that, that David read there, many of you, any, even a kindergarten uh, Sunday school class, you know the story of what happened next. As the king, he fasted all night and he wept and he mourned. He knew that this was not right. Much as Pilate, I told you I felt sorry for Pilate because Pilate knew he had done wrong. His wife knew that he had done wrong. Everyone knew that he had done wrong. So the next morning, you know that the king, he came running and he cried out, hoping that Daniel's God, the God in whom he had so faithfully served, that Daniel's God had spared him. We, of course, know that God had. God had sent an angel to seal the mouths of the lion so that Daniel would not be touched, so that Daniel would walk out victoriously. 
Dear friends, I suppose the reason that I bring this up right now is because we know that Jesus was not spared from the mouths of death. As we look at this story and we recognize that the God of the universe has handed his son over, he has given his son over to death. That while death has swallowed him whole, that it is his son who walks out victoriously. And that we who have been joined with him, we can look at both of these stories. We can look at both of these stories and say, there might be times when God will spare me from death. There might be times when God might send one of his holy angels to seal the mouths of the lion that I might not be touched, not even a scratch. Or there may be, may be times when I am allowed to die. And yet if I am joined with Christ in faith, in repentant faith, if I am with Christ, if I was with him in the resurrection, if I was with him, if with him in his death, if I was with him in his resurrection, that death will not have the final say that I too have walked out victoriously. That's the hope. As we prepare our hearts looking forward to Easter Sunday, I don't want to just make this Sunday just a preparation for next Sunday, but as we begin to prepare our hearts for the story of Jesus' resurrection, that's my hope, that you see your hope in this. That it isn't just a marvelous story about the Son of God raising from the dead. You go, wow, look at what power he has. That you look at the Son of God raising from the dead, you say, wow, look, I was with him. That in faith, I too rose again. That death will not have the final say over me. That even if I am handed over to death, it will not have the final say in my life. Therefore, I have no fear. I have no fear of kings. I have no fear of governors. I have no fear of threats. I have no fear of Satan himself. I have no fear of anything because I've been joined with Christ and he is victorious. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that as your children, as those whom you have called to saving faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that you too, have, you've given us too the, the promise of victory over death. Not in our own power, not in our own abilities, not even in our ability to obey, but Father, through the power of your son, Jesus Christ, and our union with him. So Father, as we look ahead to our next gathering as we talk about the resurrection it is my deepest desire father that if there be any here that have not yet been joined to christ in repentant faith that this would be the day that today father you would call them to faith that you would save their souls that you would find them justified before you adopted into your family and guaranteed a glorious eternity so father in the moments to come in the weeks to come in the days to come i ask father that you would save those among us who need to be saved. That you would give assurance to those of us that are. That you would hold us tight. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.